thankful for what the Lord's doing in our midst. In church, it is very good to be with you this morning. And again, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. I assume from the way the Lord stopped us last week that He was done with me in nine. So we'll go on to ten. I'm not hard-headed. Notice my wife did not say amen. <laughs> uh, but we've been, spent several weeks in Romans 9. And that is rich in the sovereignty of God. Uh, people don't like that. And I get hard knocks online because of that. But it's there. I didn't write it. I just preach it. But when you get into Romans 10, it is equally hard on the responsibility of man. He presses down upon you very strenuously that you must repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is able to flow from 9 to 10 without any hesitation. It's absolutely no skin off his nose. And so it should not be off our nose. But you also need to realize that the sovereignty of God is not finished in 10. It moves away from His work among people to His work within the gospel. Because when you see how God designed the gospel, you begin to understand that He took care of every jot and tittle. He painted every corner. He did everything within it, and it will not be changed, and it must not be changed. He described what is, what is accomplished in it. He describes who it is accomplished through, His Son and His Son alone. He has described how He will bring it to the nations. He has described what it is about the Son we must believe, and He has described in the sovereignty of His gospel how you must respond. And if you get that part wrong, you're left outside of the grace that is found in the gospel. God is sovereign over His gospel. He's very particular about His gospel. But when you begin to hear the first words of Romans 10, you realize that the Apostle Paul is opening up his heart and letting us look on the inside. Because the absolute heart of the Apostle Paul is to see his people the nation of Israel, come to saving faith. That is the Apostle Paul's desire. And we can certainly relate to that because most of you have kids in here. And I know what the number one desire of your heart is, is to see them come to saving faith. If they can never throw a ball, if they can never read a word in a book, if they can never run a race or ride a bike, the desire of your heart, when you're honest with yourself, is that they may come to saving faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you hear the Apostle Paul pour out his heart, you need to understand exactly what it is, and I know that you do. Paul knows that our greatest need is salvation, and we're not just talking about the Israelites. We're talking about every man that's ever been born. And if that man would be honest about himself and try to whittle all of life down to one need, he would quickly set aside clothes, food, relationships, shelter, love, family, children. He would set all those things aside if he was really forced to whittle all of life down to one need and he would realize if he had any sense about him whatsoever is, my greatest need is a need for the salvation of my soul. And when we draw upon Romans chapter 10, that's exactly what Paul wants to describe for us. 
And so here's the question. How in the world do I fulfill that need? How is my greatest desire met? And Paul says, I'll tell you. Fortunately, the God who created us, the God who just gave you that last breath that you just took, the God that made that heart beat that last time in your chest is the same God who not only supplies all of our physical needs, but He is also the God that teaches us about our greatest spiritual need. And that need is met through righteousness. Without righteousness, there is no hope for heaven. But with righteousness, there is an absolutely certainty that you will spend the rest of eternity in heaven. And when I talk about righteousness, I know you don't use that word a whole lot. And I'm certainly not talking about some sort of random righteousness. I am speaking specifically of the only righteousness there is, and that is the righteousness of God. If you'll notice verse 3 with me, Paul is very careful to help us understand who it is that righteousness belongs to. Speaking about the Israelites, he said in verse 3, for not knowing about God's, Notice the possessive. God's righteousness. In seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the, here he goes again, righteousness of God. Your greatest need for salvation, your greatest need is for salvation, and that need is only met through you obtaining the very righteousness of God. We spend a tremendous amount of time from pulpits and podiums helping you understand the character of God, and I'm so thankful for that. But one of the words that Scripture uses to describe the God that we worship is the word righteous. And I've often tried to whittle that word down for you into the simplest of definitions, and I always come away with, it's doing what is right. But there's many more definitions to help us understand that. And I'll offer you a few this morning, continue to drive you into the direction of understanding what it is that is the righteousness of God. One definition is this. It is His perfect moral behavior that is absolutely consistent with truth. God's righteousness is His perfect morality that is just and right in all that is done, all that is said, and all that God thinks. In other words, righteousness is the very perfection of God. That is what is required of you. There is one requirement laid upon you, and that is it. That you possess the righteousness of God in order to be able to enjoy heaven forever. Now, when you think about Adam and Eve, and we'll go all the way back to the first, right? It's debated whether or not they were righteous. In fact, from the text, when I enter into that debate, I don't think you can prove that. But what I do think you can prove is that they were innocent of sin. I think that truth is clear within the text, and I don't think there's any argument about it. They were innocent of sin. But whether or not they were righteous, I don't know. But I do know this. They had access to righteousness. Because they had perfect communion with God, and God is the sole one that possesses righteousness, they had access to His righteousness. And when you think about their communion with God, I don't know if you saw the, sun, the sunrise this morning. Man, the Lord woke me up early. And so I got to see the whole thing. 
In fact, I got my coffee and sat down and started reading and praying some this morning. My wife got up and she called me back in the kitchen to see it again. And I reflected on this passage thinking about the access that Adam and Eve had every single morning when they walked with the Lord. Can you imagine if you got to do that? I mean, you get up even before dawn, right? You get a shower, you shave, you brush your hair, you get on some nice clothes and you just go outside and you just wait for the Lord to come walking across the field. Because you're going to get to do it again. And that's exactly what you would do every morning if you had the opportunity to spend some time walking with the Lord in the morning. And they had that. Watching the sun come up in the glory of His creation and asking Him question after question. You see, Adam and Eve had no example before them. They didn't have any parents. So they walked with the Lord and they more than likely accessed that righteousness through questions by going, Lord, what what should I think about this? And the Lord would inform them from absolute righteousness what their thought needed to be. Well, Lord, what do I need to do? And through righteousness, God would describe for them what it was that they needed to do that day. And then something would happen and go, Lord, what do I need to think? And having no other source for any sort of outside wisdom in the righteousness of God, He would go, this is what you need to think. Y'all, they didn't even know they were naked. They had absolutely no access to any other information or wisdom other than the righteousness of God. What a way to live. What a way we will live. But then along came a choice. Right? Don't eat. I got one tree out here. Don't eat from that tree, right? So rather than getting up that morning and walking out to enjoy their communion with God, and ask Him about what is this desire that's welling up in my heart to rely upon my own decision and wisdom. Rather than doing that, they turned away from the Lord and they trusted not in the righteous wisdom of God, but they trusted in their own righteousness, which was no righteousness at all. Rather than trusting in perfect wisdom, they trusted in their own wisdom and they took of the fruit and ate. Man, did they lose everything. They did not just lose enjoying living in the perfect place, which is beyond the scope of my imagination. But they lost access to communion. The next morning they got up and the Lord was not walking across the field. Besides that, they wouldn't even have known because they were hiding something they had never done before. And not only did they lose communion and sweet fellowship with the Lord, they lost the righteousness of God. They no longer had access to that sweet thing that told them how to think, how to do, how to live, how to speak. All that was gone And they were left alone. And it was not only now this lack of righteousness in which they lived, now they lived in wickedness. Now they lived in sin. Now they lived in rebellion, the very opposite 
of all that they had in their communion with God and in the righteousness of God. And so when you think about what we need for heaven, righteousness, and you think about what happened in Adam and Eve and what's proven over and over again in our own lives, any hope of obtaining righteousness in and of ourselves is the most hopeless thing that could ever be. We do not have it. We do not possess it. We cannot produce it. We cannot achieve it. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it. It cannot be found. The one thing we need is well beyond our reach in and of ourselves. But when we turn back to God, we realize that the God who created us, the God who has always provided every single physical need in our life, is the same God who has worked in such a way from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the book, has worked in such a way as to provide righteousness for a people who will believe. That should overwhelm you. That should cause joy to so much well in your heart that you're willing to spend the rest of your life worshiping the Lord. Not just what He did, but the way that He did it through His Son is absolutely breathtaking and well beyond our ability to comprehend the mercy of God and the grace of God. Because God provided this righteousness that we need through the sacrifice of His own Son. John MacArthur's ministry is probably almost over. And I heard him say the other day that the most important verse in your Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And if you're not much of a verse memorizer, you really need to commit this one to memory because it describes everything that I've been talking about this morning. God made Him, Christ Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the what? The righteousness of God. God restored it all. Everything that we lost through His Son. If you ask the question, how in the world He did that, I'm glad you asked because that's the very gospel itself that I want to describe for you this morning. Because God sent His Son... To become a man. And you need to reflect who he was before Christ Jesus became a man. Because according to John 1, he stood face to face with God. He was equal with God. He was God, John said. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, laid aside, if you will, the robes of glory this equalness that he enjoyed with his father, and he humbled himself and he put on the robes of frailty and flesh as he put on the robes of humanity. God became a man, having been born of a virgin, but he was still God, and therefore he possessed the righteousness that we needed. God didn't just send bread from heaven. He sent the righteousness that we needed in the flesh. The very thing that we needed for heaven 
God sent in the form of His Son. And even though the Son of God was tempted in every way, yet was without sin, the reason for that is because He was God in the flesh. And the Son of God carried the weight of our sin and the guilt of our sin to Calvary and hung on a tree and died. And the judgment and the wrath that you and I deserved for our sin and our rebellion, He drank the whole cup dry. He stood in the way of an overwhelming flood of the wrath of God and He swallowed every drop in our place. And we know that the Father was pleased with the righteous work of the Son because God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. He had never done that. And He didn't just raise Him. He crowned Him. And He seated Him at His right hand as Lord and King over all. And that's exactly where that Son of God sits today as He continues to mediate for you. For there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a clip that rolled through my social media this week. It's Paul Washer. I don't know if you ever get to hear him, but if you think I punch you in the stomach every week, you have not a clue. But he was talking about giving a sermon on the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ at a secular university. And he said a young man stood up and he said this, how can one man's suffering for a few short hours on a cross save a multitude of men from a so-called eternal hell? If you know Washer, he pointed at him and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now sit down. And he said, I'll tell you, because that was not just a man. He said, if you took everything in all of creation, everything physical, everything spiritual, and put it on a balance, and put that man on the other side of that balance, you need to understand that it would not come close to his worth and his weight and his glory. It would be a sad comparison. He said, that was not just a man. He said, that was the Holy Son of God who is worth more than anything that has ever been created or made. So that's how the death of one man on a tree 2,000 years ago has the worth and the value to pay for every sin that's ever been committed by every single man. The Lord Jesus Christ, in all of His righteousness, died in our place, and through faith and trust and belief in Him alone, all of your rebellion, all of your sin, all of your judgment that you so rightly deserved is taken away and placed on His sacrifice. And the perfect righteousness of God, your one requirement, is given to you freely by grace. This is, without question, glorious beyond our ability to measure. But God in His sovereignty chose that particular way. In fact, God in His sovereignty in regard to the gospel only chose one way. Acts 4.12 says this, There is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You see, you see your responsibility because I'm leading you there, but you need to see God's tight sovereignty over His gospel. It will be only through my Son because only my Son possesses righteousness and there will be no other way given to you to have the opportunity to obtain the very thing that you need for salvation. It will be this way and this way alone. But there's even more sovereignty in this over, gospel, over the gospel because God has chosen how we will even hear this salvation. Look at verse 14 and watch what the Lord says here. How then will they call on Christ in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And then He asks the question in verse 15. And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it stands written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. God has chosen that this message of His about His Son and the righteousness that we need will only come through the way of proclamation. But before I get into that, i got to touch on the feet because the feet messed me up this week. That's such an odd phrase, isn't it? Beautiful are the feet who bring good news. And we don't really get that in our context and culture. I understood it better in the Northwest. Because you know how we are in the South. You walk into somebody's house, you start kicking off their shoes, and what do they say? Oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. Come on in. They don't do that in the Northwest. You walk in the door, you forget to take your shoes off. They stop you and say, would you please take your shoes off? And the reason that they do it up there is because it rains nine months out of the year. Your feet are wet. And they don't want you walking through the house and on the carpet with your wet, muddy feet. And so everywhere you go, it kind of bruised our southern egos just a little bit the first time somebody did it to us. But then we remember, because I'm one of those guys like, no, 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 don't take your shoes off. It's fine. Come on in. But the first time I got stopped, I was like, well, okay. But then I gave it some thought. I'm like, you know, it is kind of dumb. My feet are wet. I don't need to be walking through carpet with wet feet. But when you think about that and bring that into this reference, their feet were more than just wet. Their feet really were dirty. And the feet was the first thing that was noticed because when you went to somebody's house, you provided for the washing of their feet because you didn't want their feet walking through their, your house. They didn't have shoes. They had sandals, but the feet were still dirty. And so that was the first thing noticed. That was the first thing taken care of. Dude, we need to do something about your feet. But you can see the contrariness in this statement or, or the very opposite direction. It's not we need to take care of your feet. It's how beautiful are your feet. I'm not worried about your feet. They're beautiful to me. Why in the world would you say that? Such an odd thing. Because those feet represent the fact that God sent somebody to tell you the most wonderful thing in all of creation. I've provided a way of righteousness for you. I so am not concerned about your feet being dirty. I don't care about my carpet. I don't care about my floor. I just want to hear what you have to say. And so the prophet proclaims how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this kind of news. That's the first thing that struck me. The second thing that struck me is he uses the mouths of men. 
That one tore me up. I would not have done that. I know I'm not God, but I think about some of the things he's done, and I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way. You find out in Revelations there's myriads of myriads, which means thousands upon thousands of angels that worship him, that know the gospel, that are not confused by the gospel, that are not thrown sideways by false gospels, that have not let subculture influence the gospel to change it into something else. They don't struggle with that. They know about the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were there when he was born. They were the ones to announce to the shepherds, oh, we got good news for y'all. There's been a Savior born. If it had been up to me, I would have sent angels. Hey, when of y'all go to Macedonia? One of y'all go to Huntsville? I need somebody to go to Scottsboro? That's what I'd have done. And I wouldn't have worried about it. But God sent men. He did not send angels to proclaim this message. And that bothers me. Because this mouth that throughout my life has often been filled with ungodliness is given the opportunity to proclaim the most godly good news that has ever been given in the history of creation. You think about that? The most godly thing you will ever proclaim to your kids is that God loves you and sent His Son to die for you on a tree. And if you will turn from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you child can be saved. You will never, ever say anything to your children more glorious, more valuable, more wonderful than those words. And for some reason, God chose our mouths to do it. The only reason that I can think that He did that is because He's obviously the only one that can get the glory for that. If God picked rebels to proclaim the good news of His glory, the only one that can get glory for that is God. Then I had another thought that I won't bother you with too long. Probably the most contradictory thing on the planet is an arrogant preacher. How? How could a man be given such a wonderful task of proclaiming such a glorious gospel knowing that he's a sinner at heart apart from the grace of God and be filled with pride? That is absolutely a contradictory of terms. And that's something else I had to wrestle with this week that I won't put on you. But God's sovereignty even goes further than all of these things because God in His sovereignty, has chosen who this message is for. Look at verse 11. Let me read 11, 12, and 13 for you. Romans 10 and 11 says, For Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has brought 
this good news to all men. And that's the meaning of Jew and Greek. Or you could say Jew and Gentile. Because he has divided up humanity really into two races of men. The Jews in the Old Testament and the Gentiles in the New Testament. So when we talk about Wednesday night and we talk about redemption history, what we're talking about is this great turn in the history of man that took place at Calvary. Because before then, this news was only for one particular people, and those were the Jews. But when Christ died on the tree and God announced His gospel, He gave His gospel to all men and He sent out preachers to preach this good news to all men. You and I live in the greatest moment in the history of man. And I know, like, well, I know that we like to whine around about how difficult things are in this life. I get that. But from a salvation historical perspective, it could not be better. We live in the best of times because we live in the times where you can go anywhere you want on this planet and preach God's good gospel. And if His grace and His Spirit are moving, that man can repent and believe. That's the day you live in. There is all men without distinction now. And it comes through the proclamation of His message. But God's not only opened the door to salvation, He's made it possible and accessible to all men, which means this is even about to get better. Look at verse 5. Look what Paul writes in verse 5 through 8. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. In other words, in the Old Testament, it was living by the law. But the righteousness based on this gospel, this faith, speaks as follows. Don't say in your mouth who's going to go up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. In other words, don't think this gospel's out of your reach. You ain't got to climb up to heaven to get righteousness. You ain't got to climb the highest mountain to bring Christ down. That's not what you have to do. Look what he says next, verse 7. Who will descend down into the abyss? That is to bring up Christ from the dead. You don't have to dig down to the center of the earth to find righteousness. God says, I've never put it out of your reach. It is accessible for you, and it's accessible for all. Look what he says in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. It's not too hard for you. It's not too hard for your kids. God didn't do that with this gospel. It's not too hard for any man to understand. It's not out of the reach of any man if someone comes proclaiming the truth of the gospel. God has put it accessible to all men through the preaching of the gospel. God in His grace has put righteousness one message away. One message away from hearing and believing. But God is even more sovereign than that because God has chosen what it is about the message that you must believe. You see, you don't get to pick what you believe. God says, I've defined that. I've determined that. Look in verse 9. The Lord writes, if you confess with your mouth, here's one phrase, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart, here comes the second phrase, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So you've got a phrase within the gospel that you've got to deal with. And the first phrase comes to you is this, Jesus is Lord. And that speaks of two different things when you say Lord. Number one, it speaks of divinity. Jesus Christ is God. And if you do anything else with Him, you're wrong. Which means I just left several cults in my wake. Mormonism, right? Jehovah's Witness. They just fell by the wayside when you consider the very divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. And if you get that wrong, it's not even possible for you to obtain righteousness. You have to understand who He is. But Lord not only speaks of divinity, it also speaks of authority. He's the one that's seated at the right hand of God. My wife taught some of your kids that this morning through Psalms 2. He's the one that God has crowned king. He's the one which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. you got to get that right. Which immediately implies that you're not Lord. That He is the one who holds all authority because God has given Him all authority. So the first thing that you got to deal with when you come to the face of the gospel is realize this. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is both divine and He is both King. He is God and He is ruler over all. And then you come to the second phrase where it says, And God has raised Him from the dead. Which means, again, He's God. And this is what God the Father has done through the life of God the Son. You've got to believe in that. There are some essential truths to this gospel that you've got to hold fast with your whole heart. And this is one of those truths. And you would literally be surprised at the number of people who profess faith in Christ who do not believe He was raised from the dead. There is no hope of righteousness for you unless you understand what God did through this gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord, and the reason we know that is because God the Father raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. So God is sovereign over the elements of the gospel. And then last thing that I want to bring you to is God is sovereign over how you respond to everything I just said. You don't get to respond the way that you want. You, you want to respond a particular way. You want me to give you some work to do. But that's not how God said we should respond. It is not earned by performing good deeds. It is not obtained by keeping the law. It's not achieved through coming to worship every Sunday. It's not reached through any sort of religious zeal. God says that is not the way. Notice verse 2. Look at Romans 10 verse 2. Paul writes, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. He's not being sarcastic. He's describing a whole nation that's absolutely zealous for God. And do you realize that if we met somebody who claimed a zealousness for God and lived with a great zeal for God, you and I would automatically go, hey, dude, they're so good. Don't worry about them. Paul says they have a zeal for God, but they don't know God. You've got to understand that God defined culture for this people, right? They actually knew the one true God. They knew the God who created the heavens and the earth. They didn't struggle with creation. 
They knew what God had done through the one man Abraham. They knew that God had formed one nation for Himself. They knew and engaged in worship every single week. They wouldn't miss it for love or money. They had the Scriptures. They had much of them memorized. They taught the Scriptures to their kids. And yet Paul says, this zeal is not enough. That ought to mess us up. I remember being young in the faith and trying to share the faith one time, and as far as I could get was, do you believe in God? To which he said, yes. And we went about the business of whatever it was that we were doing. And I was, felt like he was good. That didn't prove anything. I would imagine 90-something percent of the people on the planet believe in God. But even in having a zeal for the one true God was not enough. Do you realize one of the words that I have to deal with often now when I deal with people sharing the gospel is sincerity. People think, oh, they're sincere. They're sincere. They're good people and they're, so, they're just genuine. They're sincere. They're fine. Man, that doesn't even begin to reach all that was going on in Israel just because they have some sort of sincerity. Oh, they're spiritual people. They talk about God all the time. They're fine. Again, that doesn't even approach what was going on in Israel. And Paul says, no, they're absolutely left out. Others, because they say the name Jesus, you know, we go through this, someone mentions Jesus and we immediately go, oh, oh they're okay. They're okay. But again, I take you back to if you do the wrong thing with Jesus, you're absolutely out. Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. The Mormonisms believe the Mormons believe in Jesus. It's just not what God has said about Jesus. Jehovah's Witness believe in Jesus again, but it's not what God has said about Jesus. In other words, none of these things are sufficient. God in his sovereignty has defined who he is and how we must respond. Now, I want to show you this. I don't like too long, so please stay with me. But notice verse 8. Because Paul is going to give us several words to describe what he expects in the response to this gospel. Look at verse 8. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith. So he mentions the word faith is necessary. Look down in verse 17. He comes back to the word faith. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we understand it's by faith and faith alone. But Paul's like, I want to give you a whole lot more words. Because I don't want you to misunderstand me. So watch what he does in verse 9. That if you confess, there's a new word, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we love to run with those words. Oh, you need to say it with your mouth, and you need to believe it with your whole heart. So we've automatically got faith, we've got confess, we've got believe. And we love to turn Romans 10, 9 into some kind of formula to get people saved, and we don't even go on to read verse 10. Because verse 10, he switches the order. Look what he says in verse 10. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Now watch what Paul just did and showed firefighters this this morning, right? Confess. Confess. With your mouth. Believe with your heart. 
Believe with your heart. What's he driving at? The heart. Do you know why he's driving at the heart? Because that's something the law could never touch. Let me give you an example of your kids. You could tell your kids what to do all day long. You could even spank them if they don't do it. And you could get some kind of behavior out of them that's acceptable. But what do you want? You want them to have a different heart. You want them to have a heart toward that particular thing that I'm just not going to do that anymore. Mom and dad don't like it. I need to learn not to like it. I'm done. At which point you pass out because you think you finally arrived at glory. Their heart got changed. And Paul's trying to help you understand that this is how I want you to respond to the gospel. Yes, there is a confession, but it's driven by a heart that's been made new. It's driven by a heart that's been born again, and you can't but help open your mouth. Because everything is different for you. But Paul's like, I got more words for you. Let me keep going. Notice verse 11. Whoever believes, there's your word, belief in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches. Here comes your next word. For all who call on Him. Verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's another word. We got faith, we got confess, we got believe, and now He's like, whoever will call on the Lord will be saved. Paul's still trying to help you understand what it means to respond to the gospel. My favorite word comes last. Notice verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. He uses that word once. That's my favorite word because we all understand the word heed. Heed means not only do you hear it, but you obey it. And again, I'll take you back to your kids. Have you ever got the attention of your kids by snapping or saying, Look at me. Don't do that again. Now you know they heard it. But that's not what you're waiting on, is it? You're just waiting to see whether or not they're going to heed it. Whether or not they're going to obey it. Because that's what you're after. And the Lord says it's not just enough to hear it. What I'm driving, in, driving at is that you obey it from the heart. Let me give you one more analogy. And I'll quit because I know I'm getting long. And I brought them into this this morning. It's kind of like getting married. It's a lot like getting married. You see a girl and you think, yeah, I think that one could be the one. And then you move on to step two. I'm convinced that's the one. Now, if we stop right there, is that the one? Oh, no. Not at all. There's still a commitment that you have to make in order that she might be the one. And until you make that commitment and walk that aisle and stand before the preacher and go, this is the one and only one, you haven't accomplished anything. And that's what I'm afraid that so many people have done with the gospel. And it goes something like this. Oh, I've heard that a thousand times. Okay, then let's go on to the next step. Do you think it's true? I'm absolutely convinced that that's true. I believe that's true. I'll argue that's true. Are we there yet? No. The only place that you've got so far is kind of like your political conviction. 
you believe who you vote for is such a right thing that you actually go through with that conviction, right? But you don't give your life for that. You don't commit yourself to that way. If you do, you're a little bit odd. And it's the same way with the gospel. You can hear it. You can go, I agree with it. There's nothing else that's right. But you still have not gone the whole way. Because you still have not heeded the good word from God and you still not submitted your life to what God has said. Look back at verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Guys, you understand the gospel. It is literally, without question, the greatest news you'll ever hear in your whole life. I know you've heard it, and you've heard it from a great many people. I know you agree with it. I know you think everything else is foolishness. I know that. But until you submit your life to that, there's nothing that's been changed. And my fear is there'll be a great many people die arguing that Jesus is the way and never walk the way to Christ. God is sovereign over His salvation, but you need to understand you're responsible. In the design of God, you have to hear the gospel and you have to repent from your sins and you have to put your whole weight of your life in trusting that gospel. And when you do, you have a righteousness that comes only from God, that it is the one requirement for heaven. Have you done that? It's not out of reach. It's not out of reach of any of the kids here this morning. God didn't put it on the top shelf. He put it well within the reach of your understanding and your comprehension. Let's pray.